How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Business and government leaders often invoke their children and grandchildren when discussing how to build a cleaner economy. And yet youth are often on the fringes of such conversations or not even in the room. Today, Climate One puts youth front and center. We welcome four young advocates who are driving the transition to a low-carbon future today. They're not waiting until they have gray hair or hold a powerful job. And they're certainly not waiting for Congress to pass energy legislation or the UN to craft a global treaty. We have Jason Beatty, a 19 Stanford student and also a California climate champion. Gemma Gibbons is 19 and a UC Santa Cruz student involved with the Indigenous Environment Network. Shreya Indukuri is 16 and a student at the Harker Upper School in San Jose. And Ali Reed is a student at UC Berkeley and is on the national team of the Real Food Challenge. Please welcome them to Climate One. Welcome to you all. Uh, Shreya, let's start with you. How did you get involved in environmental activism? Uh, You're a high school student. How did it start? Um, Well, basically, I'd known about climate change for the past few years, but um, I think I really started getting involved in it, involved with it when I heard Alliance for Climate Education speak at my school about a year ago. Um, some of them are actually here with us. There's Alicia and Ashel and Emily and Ashley. Um, their, their presentation was incredibly inspiring and dynamic. And my friend Daniela and I, after watching it, we decided to apply for one of the environmental grants they offered. And um, we ended up winning over the summer, and um, we had a smart energy system and an organic garden and and window insulating film installed at our school. And um, the smart energy system project was really successful and it kind of snowballed into us co-founding an organization to help schools all over the area do um, a similar project. I co-founded smartpower.org with my friend Daniela and we are basically working with students all over the Bay Area to help them like save money and reduce carbon emissions from there. Great. We'll come back to that energy usage and, and the story about that. I want to hear more about your refrigerator at your school that was uh, doing some funny things. Uh, Jason, you are involved with the, the Green Youth Alliance. Tell us about that and how you got involved in environmental advocacy. Sure. Um, I suppose I started in high school first. Um, just I wanted solar panels on my school, and I wanted a better recycling program. And that led to starting a committee at the school, and then from the committee I ended up working with um, the city I live in, Foster City. Um, and from there it just snowballed into the district and then the state with the climate champions, and that went to international level. And then eventually I got to know just different people in the community. So ACE, I've done presentations with The Alliance them. for Climate Education. Yes, Alliance mm-hmm. for, sorry, Alliance for Climate Education. And... Um, and then also Green Youth Alliance. So a former sociology professor at Stanford, Sue Chow, um, had heard about me. She lives in Foster City, too, and had started this Green Youth Alliance to try to network some of her students um, 
she, t- she tutors high school students, and she found a lot of them were interested in environmental issues, and she was trying to network them. And she saw what I was doing at my high school, and I had also been trying to say, okay, I'm creating all this stuff at my high school, and it, it seems to be going pretty well. I'd like to export that to others. Um, so we sort of teamed up serendipitously, I guess, and um, have been working with about 10 high schools in Bay Area um, since 2008. So, so yeah, that's what I'm working on with them, at least. So Excellent. And, and Gemma, tell us about the Indigenous Environment Network. What are you doing with them, and how did you get involved with them? The Indigenous Environmental Network is um, a Native American-run organization that is involved in Indigenous communities all over Turtle Island, which essentially comprises from the tip of Alaska to the tip of Chile, and um, working within communities against Uh, extractive industries and corporate exploitation of indigenous lands, resources, and territories. And so I was first introduced to IEN, as it's called, um, through the 2008 Bioneers Conference, and I heard actually a picture of him was in the video we just watched, uh, Clayton Thomas Mueller um, speaking about a project he was working on in Canada, and I was just floored by not only the the youth that were involved in this in IEN, but I immediately was like, "How can I get involved? How can I be a part of your your group?" And um, essentially, in the past couple months, before leading up to Copenhagen, they invited me to be a youth delegate on their uh, IEN delegation that was attending the climate meeting. Great, and we'll come back to some of the international connections here uh, uh, shortly. Ellie, let's talk about uh, the Real Food Challenge. Uh, what is that, and how did you get involved? Um, the Real Food Challenge is a national network of students who are working on food issues, and one of the wonderful things about food is that it touches on so many different aspects of culture and society and politics and in the environment. Um, I got involved. I worked with an organization called United Students for Fair Trade, Um, which has historically sort of affiliated itself with social justice movements, um, with worker rights movements, Um, but in 2008 sort of got uh, introduced to the idea that it could be a part of this burgeoning sustainable food movement since most of the fair trade products are agricultural products. So I got introduced to the Real Food Challenge in early 2008. It was still in its design phase at that point. It didn't launch until the fall of that year. But the idea behind the Real Food Challenge is that there are students on campuses all over the country working on all these incredible things that are related to food, working on animal rights, putting in organic gardens in their school, doing fair trade, farm worker rights, um, and that that their uh, passion and their drive and their success might be lost because it was so unique to each campus. Um, So we at the Real Food Challenge found a way to quantify uh, their successes by putting together a a real food calculator, um, which can be used to audit schools and see how much of their food is what we're calling real, which is ecologically sound, community-based, fair, humane, and healthy. Um, And so by giving schools this common goal to sign on to and this national network and this campaign, uh, we can really leverage their success and, and bring the student power together in a way that can really change the systems. And so far, it, it, did you mention the 20%? You want the, the UC system to have 20% real, as you define, real food by, by 2020? Yeah, that's one of the major successes of the Real Food Challenge. Um, 
the, the overall goal is to get 20% real food in all uh, institutions of higher learning by 2020, which means redirecting about a billion dollars towards uh, the food that we want to see. Um, last year, the University of California system signed on as a whole. The UC regents adopted a sustainable foods policy based on the Real Food Challenge guidelines. So all the UCs are going to have 20%, at least 20% real food by 2020. And you're going to be watching them to make sure they're actually doing that? Yes, we are. <laughs> How are you going to be watching them? Um, I mean, as a student group, we don't have uh, any real enforcement mechanisms other than the fact that the UC system is an early adopter of this. They're very proud of having been on the forefront historically of a lot of sustainability initiatives, um, and they have promoted themselves as leading this sort of food movement in a lot of ways. Um, and it's going to be very embarrassing for them because we will publicize it heavily if they don't actually succeed with that. Um, part of this, uh, the, cam- the um, sustainable food initiative that they've signed on to um, involves every school has to put together a sustainable food systems working group that has to include administration, students, and faculty. Um, I'm, on a, I'm on the sustainable food systems working group at UC Berkeley, um, which meets once a month, once every couple of months, um, and does yearly audits, talks about it, makes sure that um, they're actually putting their uh, money where their mouth is. So let's talk about the common experience you have as, as youth going to uh, adults running institutions, schools, and saying, we want something to change. We want something you to do something differently. What kind of, let's talk about those experiences, what kind of resistance you encountered, and what got the adults in power to come, come to your side? What, what, what got, you know, who did you change and how did you do it, Shreya? Um, well, for me, at first, I went to go speak to my principal with my partner, Daniela, and we were really scared because we'd never spoken to him before. And Only if you're in trouble, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, we expected him to be like, why are you doing this? What are you doing? But um, he was really supportive of us, actually. He directed us to, um, like, different people to talk to, like our environmental science teacher and our school's architect and our facility youth director. And, and what specifically were you asking him to do or change? Um, we were just kind of telling him about our grant and we wanted obviously the school support if we were going to apply for something that the school would have to implement. So That's um, a good idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, we talked to him about it and he was like really support- supportive. We were actually really surprised at how open and like um, helpful he was. And I mean, I think a lot of times students are scared to talk to their administration, but if you're doing something that's important and that'll make a difference, most of the time they'll be um, they'll be pretty supportive. But um, something you should know is you should always be like prepared before you're talking to them. Like you should know what you're talking about. Good, another good idea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so you asked them to do some things. He came on board, and and what was the outcome? What did the what change? What did the school save? Um, what happened from our project? Yeah, or, the impact of your project. So over the summer, um, uh, smart meters were installed at our school, and our smart energy system basically just tracks your energy consumption. And um, my friend and I had done some research from the EPA, and we found that uh, 40% of a building's greenhouse gas emissions, um, of the U.S.'s greenhouse gas emissions, come from just buildings, which right. is a lot. And um, 30% of that is used unnecessarily. So um, it's kind of like being 30 pounds overweight. You'd want to lose 30 pounds to be like healthy. So it was something like that. We wanted to um, have that knowledge um, from where our buildings were using uh, energy unnecessarily and reduce that. 
Shrey Ndukuri is a student at the Harker School in, in San Jose. We're discussing uh, youth advocacy and climate change at, at Climate One. Uh, Jason, let's talk about your uh, experience influencing adults at educational institutions. What's, what's the key to getting them uh, to come on board? I wish I had a key. Um, yeah. With solar, that was probably the most difficult project we had. I mean, that took me... Uh, about two and a half years to finally see through. And uh, they're going to install starting this summer, hopefully. So it it finally happened. Um, But really, it was just a lot of squeaky wheel. Um, And when it comes down to it, it's it's really about the economics as well. So solar saved the district money, um, and that's why they ended up uh, deciding to really look into it probably about a year ago. They started to get serious about the prospect of solar. Um, recycling, same thing. Uh, a lot of the the initiative had to come from uh, our committee, but once that once that got going and we were demonstrating actual financial savings, then the school started to get interested because the financial savings directly translate to uh, more money into to education. But something um, you were mentioning, uh, energy, uh, smart energy systems, we got a uh, similar piece of software installed for the air conditioning at my high school. It was a very expensive system. It was in the six figures. Um, but all we needed to do was send a letter to each of the board uh, members and uh, demonstrate how much savings it, it would be, and they approved it pretty quickly. So I think, it's, unfortunately, it's really about savings. Um, and with public schools, that's really it would be nice to have... Um, you know the the moral background, like oh, we should do this because um, not necessarily it's going to save us money, but because it's the right thing to do. Uh, but with schools, you really can't hold them to that just because they're so pinched right now. Um, the budgets are, I mean, I think this year they're expecting huge cuts again. So unfortunately, the environmental aspect comes second to the financial aspects. So that's really the selling point. And they're able to save money on solar because they, they're able to have, they own their facility, they have a long time horizon, because a lot of homeowners look at solar and say, mm-hmm. well, I may yeah. not be there. It's, solar's not always thought of as a cost saver, it's thought, mm-hmm. thought of as a cost expense up front. Yeah, the thing that made at least the San Mateo Union High School District, where I'm from, um, so we have six schools, and they're putting in about a $30 million worth of, of panels. And what makes it doable is that's coming from um, bond, voter-approved voter initiative. Uh, or not voter initiative, but um, it's funded by, by voters um, through Measure M, I believe. So that money is not coming up front. It's, a, it's, essential, or it's coming from a different source than, than the district's own capital pools. And as that, those savings, energy savings, will go straight into the general budget. So our school happens to have been fairly fortunate insofar as financing is concerned. Um, but there are other financial mechanisms, which I won't bore you with um, now, that are definitely being explored, especially financing and different versions of bonds, um, clean renewable energy bonds and such, that are really being made available for public schools um, and also rebates through the state, the solar initiative and whatnot. But it's difficult, I'm not going to lie. Um, it's hard to make it work. And that's why it took our district so long to finally get it through, because it's hard to find the money to put it there. Sure. I'm going to get to Gemma in just a second. But, uh, Shreya, I skipped over. Uh, there was a refrigerator running at night that was costing lots of money. Um, it was actually, I, we believe it was the dishwasher. Um, what happened was uh, <laughs> um, 
within the first week of installation of the smart energy system, one of the features of the software is it tracks anomalies, which are unusual like spikes of energy. And we noticed something was going on at night when there shouldn't have been because nothing is supposed to be on at night. And um, our facilities director, he went in and investigated the problem, and he found out that the dishwasher had been running for like an unknown period of time. And all he had to do was turn off the switch, and he estimated that just by doing that, along with another anomaly he found in the gym, like the air conditioning was running every weekend, um, those two problems would end up saving the school a few thousand dollars within the very first year. Simple stuff. Yeah. So hopefully the, uh, the principal has uh, thanked you or rewarded you something for saving, <laughs> save, saving some money. Uh, Gemma Givens, you're at Santa Cruz. How do, this sustainability, how does it rank? As a, another campus, as the others are known for, for activism, um, how many of your colleagues, other students at Santa Cruz, are concerned about sustainability or they got other, other political priorities that they're concerned about? Oh, my goodness. UC Santa Cruz has an incredible sustainability program. And um, in terms of how to get support for going to Copenhagen, it Mike a little bit closer. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It was um, it was a lot easier than I thought it would be. I I worked also with a, a youth group called Sustain Us, the U.S. Youth Network for Sustainable Development, and they're a volunteer, completely volunteer youth group based out of Washington D.C. that uh, flew me in for a training over the summer. And before I started school, they, they taught me how to put together essentially a press packet, you know, um, a complete budget of what I wanted to fundraise. Um, the university did a nice article on, you know, my, my campaign and what I was going to Copenhagen for, a sheet just even about what the conference was going to be about, and um, a couple of other things. And they, they trained us on how to communicate with different, you know, professors or people in the community or the media. And I, you know, um, out of my pocket, I made some of these packets and met a lot of people across campus, you know, even in departments I'd never have thought to, would have thought to ask for assistance. And they were more than happy to help. And Within UC Santa Cruz, we have 10 individual campuses, and the one that I'm affiliated with is uh, called College 10, which is Social Justice and Community, and they were so happy and excited to incorporate, you know, um, special events or teach-ins and lectures about, you know, before and after the conference that included, you know, my road to Copenhagen and how how it was done, and so... um, it was there was a lot of support it was any incredible. resistance people like eh that's not my issue or uh... oh yeah oh yeah sure before and after you know still even when i when i came back i was immediately confronted with well i'd go up to people like i just came back from this co- conference in copenhagen where's that you know it's well it's um it's a un conference that they hold every year what's the un you know and where's denmark and that was an experience, but and even on my campus too, I have to say, you know, you've got a, a very big mix of different people. But um, I think that's why they were so supportive of um, all the projects that I wanted to do around it. it was to raise awareness about the process. Jason, you mentioned earlier uh, that you think that those concerned with sustainability are a vocal minority at Stanford. Is that right? Oh, no. Uh, well, those who are vocal about it, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say most people have a very very general sense of awareness. 
Um, the student body is fairly educated, at least on sustainability issues. Um, at the same time, though, it's not uncommon that I'll find cans in the trash can next to your cycling bin um, or, or other easy behavioral fixes. And that's just because it's not necessarily a priority. So the awareness is there. It's just not necessarily a priority. The follow through, personal follow-through, that people walking the walk, not just talking the talk. Sure. Well, there's, there are a number of sustainability groups on campus that are very active. But, and, you know, you do hear a lot from them. So I guess I wouldn't necessarily say a... I mean, it is a minority in the sense that, um, seriously, there aren't as many people as the population probably would suggest should be involved in sustainability, but it, it's sizable, the voice at least. Do you, any of you encounter people who say climate change is not real or we shouldn't worry about it yeah. on campus? I mean, I tend to think of climate deniers as certain political circles, but are there climate deniers in college? Or high school? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think more than the students. Um, our principal actually, he first told us um, there are a few parents on our campus who really don't believe in climate change, so it's kind of hard to get um, like the entire community, including like students' families involved. And um, I mean, I guess there are various reasons behind it, but for the most part, a lot of the students um, on campus, they're, they know about it. They're, they accept it. There's no like there are no like um, people out there. There are not very many people out there who are like, oh, it doesn't exist. I don't know what she's doing. But um, uh, yeah, I think other than um, the students, like there are a few parents out there who don't believe in it. But for the most part, people generally do. Others, Ali, you ever encountered deniers at Cal? Um, I'm sure I have, and just haven't known about it. I keep it. I think, um, although Cal certainly isn't the. Uh, the school that it was in the 60s, it's much more conservative and much more apathetic. Um, and that actually might be why is that it's, so, it's often really hard to engage people in conversation about these issues because they're too busy studying for finals. Um, so I, have, I honestly cannot remember having a conversation with a Cal student who adamantly didn't believe that it existed, but I think that they're maybe in the minority or maybe just you know not, not really don't have opinions on it either way. Allie Reed is a student at UC uh, Berkeley, and we're discussing climate change and youth advocacy at Climate One today. Let's talk about your, your theory of change. Um, do you think that uh, we talked in, in the opening about sort of the, some of the policy realms, and you work at sort of the local campus and community level? Do you think that's the main way that, that change will happen uh, with regarding to our, our energy, the way the United States consumes energy, or do you look to uh, sort of Washington or Brussels or, or international and national policy as a way to really drive this? Allie? I mean, I don't think we can ever really look to Washington to lead us. Um, <laughs> but um, I do work a lot on local level things. Um, at the same time, I think that national policy has to always be at the forefront of our minds. Um, I think that uh, it's it's a little easy to slip into this, like especially with climate change issues and environmental issues, be the change you want to see. Um, you know, drive a Prius, buy organic, um, which are all wonderful things to do. And I don't mean to say it with a, a negative tone of voice, but um, there there are systems that are very very firmly in place. A lot of systems entrenched in um, degrading our environment, in racism, in classism, in all of these things that that. Um, are just self-perpetuating, um, and it's we, we can't by you know voting with our dollar really make the kind of difference that this system really needs to see. So I think 
although it sounds exhausting, we need to do both. We need to be the people. We need to set an example. We need to be supporting the systems that we want to see, and we need to be actively tearing down and reconstructing um, the existing systems. Sounds like a lot. <laughs> Anyone else on, on how the theory of change, how change is going to come about? Is it going to be individual action? Is it going to be large government action? Jason? Oh, I would just say... Um, it's very difficult to pinpoint a a locus for where you're going to do your do your action, so to speak. Um, but I think I've discovered it, it really all comes back to education um, and the way or the system in which at least citizens are are educated in this society and trained to be citizens. Um, we have a very high focus in our school system on individual success. I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing. I mean, we're in a capitalistic economy, which I am not arguing against. Um, but as a result of that, altruism is seldom taught or even discussed, and especially not um, not encouraged. Uh, for example, uh, I just took a midterm this morning, and it will be graded on a bell curve. Um, in other words, my success is dependent on the lack of success of my peers. And uh, that's not how it should be. Um, we shouldn't be trained to have that mindset. So I think if we go back and, and really, like, like Ali was saying, um, look at the fundamental system and, and change at the fundamental level how we're educated about our society, how we're educated about how our world should work, about our peers, um, if people start thinking in an altruistic way, then they'll take it upon themselves and say, hmm, what are all these impacts of, of these actions in society? Then they'll look at the choices they make when they're at the market or when they're buying clothing. Um, they'll, they'll pay better attention to the government and not be as apathetic. And then it's all systemic from there. It's not just environment-related. We'll see change, I think, in all the aspects of, of politics and current events that we wish to see change in right now. Jason Beatty, am I saying that right? Yes, Jason, you are. Jason Beatty is a undergraduate at Stanford University and a California climate champion and a guest here at Climate One today. Uh, Gemma Gibbons, you mentioned that you, you went to, to Copenhagen and found that a very stimulating experience. Uh, a lot of people thought that Copenhagen was disappointing, was a failure. Uh, you still have faith in the international institutions, international uh, student connections to be a, a driver for change? Well, as Jason said, I um, the an important lesson from Copenhagen that I got was even just education at the the very minimal. It was an incredibly chaotic experience, and I it's up to interpretation as to whether you see the Copenhagen summit as a fail or not, because um, the U.S. alone vaguely vaguely committed to. Three to four uh, percent reduction in carbon emissions by 2020. With the first commitment of the Kyoto Protocol ending, they have not signed or ratified or come up with any other um, agreement to follow this. So uh, that essentially means nothing. We may or may not cut one, two, maybe three percent, but um, yeah, it's just uh, whenever we feel like it. So. Um, being there as a student was an experience I'll never forget, just to see how it works. And coming from the Indigenous Environmental Network, on top of that, I was, in di- um, I was representing my communities, my own Indigenous communities here, and we have drafted our own tribal climate change resolution because one thing that they taught me, though, was how 
disconnected we are, you know, and decentralization was a huge part of our platform of advocacy as well as a human rights um, standpoint, but just the disconnect. We have no connection from where our food comes from, where our energy comes from, where our waste goes, and that's what needs we need to start learning again, essentially. And so there, all of it has a place, the national, the international, and it does come down to education, I believe, and empowering people with their, their rights and how to use them in their everyday lives. And that, for me, was a huge, huge part of Copenhagen. Gemma Givens is an undergraduate at UC Santa Cruz and involved with the Indigenous Environment Network. Uh, Jason Beatty, you went to Germany with UNESCO. How did you, uh, that in, in experience, uh, what do you think of that as an avenue for change, those other international conferences? Hmm. Well, the UNESCO World Youth Festival, which is uh, what I was at um, in my capacity as an international climate champion representing the U.S., um, we went, it was mostly just a cultural festival with a, a sort of theme of environmental change, which was the focus of one or two days. And the rest of it was really just getting to know um, other youth from, I think it was about 40 countries around the world. Um, and I must say the environmental and energy aspect uh, wasn't really that formative, which I'm kind of happy to say. I, the the most impactful part of the whole time was just getting to know people from other countries and and experiencing their cultures. And never have I been in such a place where um, I was a minority. There was only about five other Americans there that, that I was coming into contact with. Um, and I suppose that gave me a perspective and that gave others a perspective on on just trying to connect the locality of your own lives with the global nature of climate change. I think that's really what's difficult for a lot of people to see. You have healthcare legislation that, you know, really riles people up. And you have climate care or climate care, excuse me, climate change legislation. Um, probably equally important, apples and oranges, but of the same magnitude. Um, and it really is not getting many people very involved, and you have to wonder why. Well, healthcare is directly involved; um, it's it, you, it's tied to you. There's a nexus to your personal life. Climate change, not so much. The consequences are both temporally and geographically very distant. Um, so, something like getting youth from around the world and seeing, hmm, I just met someone from, you know, from Nepal. They're having issues with climate change directly. Their livelihoods are at stake. Um, that, that connection, getting to put a face to the, the people on the news and in the pictures and the slideshow we saw earlier, mm-hmm. um, I really saw that as being fundamentally uh, very formative. And I think more people should be doing things like that and getting to really bridge cultures and, and get to know people outside your own community because climate change is not a local problem. One of the questions that we uh, had uh, via Facebook in advance we asked a question about how to get through the, the, the clutter. Uh, people are so uh, information overload these days. Mentioned social media people. How do you get them to care and pay attention? So how do you think you get through to people, uh, young, your young peers, about these issues when they, they, they are far away in space and time? Um, well, I actually agree with kind of what Jason was saying. Um, it is kind of, it's important for students to see that this is real and the consequences are real. I've, since we're not really um, giving them a good like visual image of what's going to happen, maybe that's like another way to show them like the consequences of it. Like just talking about it, yeah, that's important to get the knowledge out. But I mean, I think if there was a way to kind of show students and people that like their family members, not just them, will be like one of the victims of climate change, if there's a way people can really like 
show that you're putting your family members on the line if you're not doing anything maybe that'll kind of reach out to them more and like make them care more because when you're putting like their family and friends in danger then they be more inclined to care Ellie Reed, how do you reach youth um well working in the with food specifically i think is a really fabulous way to get into it because there are some people who just you can't get them riled up about the environment people who you just can't get them up riled up about you know unions um but you can usually get someone riled up about something um and so it's i think as I, I feel like I'm blaspheming against my generation by saying this, but I don't think the future is in social media. I think it's still in face-to-face interactions. Um, that talking to people, feeling out what they're interested in, engaging them in conversation, listening most of the time rather than <laughs> rather than preaching, um, and I think making it making it personal um, is absolutely key. So finding out what their interests are. A question I love to ask is, "What's your favorite holiday meal?" everyone has one and it brings food really personal um and then through that you can sort of get into issues that they may be interested in and see that we actually are in a crisis not it's not rhetorical it's it's personal and it's and it's terrifying and we have to act on it now and um that conversation usually can you can get a spark going i think do you other do others agree that that uh this requires face-to-face human interaction, that, that virtual things are, may not be the, the only way to go? Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> one thing with Green Youth Alliance, we started out sort of from a more academic standpoint, like these are some good books you should, you should look at, um, giving presentations, trying to get people more academically involved, and I must admit that doesn't work uh, for most, most of my peers, most youth. Um, so we've sort of shifted our model to getting youth out and doing work parties, pulling invasive weeds in local parks. And that was one of the things we've been doing recently. And at first I was, I was a little hesitant because it seems very local. The impact is not substantial um, on a global scale. But really what ends up doing is it sparks um, in, in our youth members. It's like, hmm, this is nature. This is what I'm trying to protect. Um, and from there, then, then you hear something about climate change. like, hmm climate change affects nature, this is something I've come into contact with. Whereas if you never had that experience pulling those weeds or going backpacking or, or doing anything like that, being out in nature, um, climate change is still a very academic problem. Um, so I think it's that face-to-face communication. Um, you know, Skyping for people from 40 countries would not have been the same as my experience meeting them all. Um, but it's also face-to-face with nature and getting out and seeing where the impact's going to happen. Actually touching it. It's literally hands-on. Gemma, did you want to add to this? Um, with how to how to break through how to how to get through to people when they're they're so busy they have financial stress is it yeah. you know is social media the way or does it have to be even more human angle? Well, coming from a media perspective, <laughs> I guess I have a little bit of a bias. In you're, that. you're a journalist and has worked at the Santa Cruz Sentinel, yeah. Yeah, um, but I also agree with Ali in the exact same way that it's climate change is such an umbrella for so many different issues, and I think it's everyone's responsibility to to figure out how, what makes climate change personal to them. Because it can be a religious issue. It can be um, a human rights issue, which is sort of my um, focus within climate change and sustainability. Um, it's a, a, a feminist issue. It's, it's an everything issue. And it's, social media has been an incredibly powerful tool um, 
while we were in Copenhagen, we had uh, a, about four or five teams. I worked on the, the media team, and the the people we met from from all different aspects of the media and the kind of coverage we were able to get for our tribal communities you know within the United States was brilliant i think one of our colleagues had an interview with al jazeera and tunisian tv or something like that and to see our our messages getting sent all across the world was amazing i think there's um something to say about the people being adversely affected by climate change also being in charge of their own media pieces, which was definitely a huge focus of our Copenhagen strategy. So I think in both ways, you know, personal contact, ACE, you know, and also social media, incredibly important. Gemma Givens is an undergraduate at UC Santa Cruz and a member of the Indigenous Environmental Network. I'm Greg Dalton. We're discussing youth advocacy and climate change at Climate One. I'd like you to invite to uh, line up over at the microphone over there if you'd like to ask a question. Uh, please do. And I'm going to ask, while you do that, I'm going to ask one more of, of the uh, panel. Um, how do you feel about previous generations for creating this situation? Do you blame your fathers and grandfathers uh, for the baby boom generation for uh, their in- consumer and indulgence in, in the fossil fuels that have gotten <coughs> to this point? Um. Treya? Well, I mean, if we're going really far back, I don't really blame them because a lot of the technologies we have today wouldn't have been possible, unfortunately, without some of the, like, polluting technologies that there are. But um, I think at least what should happen is they should realize, like, the problem, and instead of continuing to do something and, like, defending um, all of the... um, like all of these companies that use like fossil fuels and um, have technologies that like pollute the environment, they should be aware of what's happening and kind of join hands with the youth that are moving towards a more sustainable future. And I think instead of looking at climate change, like I wanted to mention this before, instead of looking at climate change, like, oh, we're all going to die, what are we going to do? We should look at it in a more optimistic sense. Um, Alec Glor is one of my ACE Youth Advisory Board members. He said, um, our, like, these young generations have started movements like civil rights and human rights and hip-hop and different cultures like that. And I'm sure they had fun doing that, so they would also really enjoy, like, I would also really enjoy seeing what the sustainable movement would do, too. Great. It's an opportunity. Anyone else on the previous generation's responsibility? Gemma? The reason climate change for me is within a human rights aspect is because we're coming from climate change as from communities who are dying in the United States due to the adverse effects of climate change and by association um, corporate exploitation of our lands and our traditional knowledge. And so a huge part of our advocacy was um, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which calls for um, the respect and recognition of our traditional knowledge because my previous previous generations um, lived very sustainably and uh, have have done so for time immemorial and that's as indigenous peoples what we're really trying hard to defend in for the future of uh, the next seven generations you know and so um, I look at it as to to try and hold what my ancestors um, left for me left for me to to respect and 
So I think at this point, though, well, we're all either moving forward or we're all not. So <laughs> that's where I'm kind of at right now. Excellent. All right, let's go to questions from the audience. Yes. Hi. Um, the real food, the real food program. Do you only work with um, college campuses? That is an extremely well-timed question. Um, last week, I was at the Kellogg Foundation Food and Community Conference in Arizona, um, where a lot of uh, people who are working on sustainable food around the country come together, and a couple of incredible high school students have um, are planting the seeds now for a real food high school program. Um, so it's right now we work mostly with institutions of higher learning, colleges, universities, and community colleges. Um, but we are getting in, getting our feet wet. We're getting high schoolers to lead the charge into high schools. Um, if you are in high school, I, I recommend looking into Rooted in Community, um, which is where a lot of these youth uh, high school leaders are coming from, and that's a, a high school network of food activists. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next, please also identify yourself. My name, if you'd like. Hi, my name is Emily Adler, and I'm with Alliance for Climate Education. Um, my question for you guys is, you've done so many amazing things at such a young age, and I'm curious where you see yourselves in five to ten years. The interview question. Oh. <laughs> Jason? Oh, absolutely no idea. Um, and okay. I'm, I'm very happy with that. A grad school, most likely. Your parents uh, are here, too. Are they happy with that? Let's see. Yeah, okay. Um, certainly grad school. Um, and then grad school after that. And then probably grad school after that. I'm not, I'm not sure if I... If I you want to stay in academia, you told me. Okay. Um, Shreya? Well, I'm 16, so hopefully college. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, yeah, in, I'd hopefully be in college and continue in making my college sustainable, hopefully, unless there's a college out there that's 100% sustainable, but I'd probably not want to be there then. Ellie? Um, I mean, I'd love to see myself out of the job um, that everything is sustainable and there's no climate change anymore, but um, <laughs> five to ten years might not be the right timeline for that. Uh, I see myself probably in nonprofits, working with national policy, um, uh, working to tear down systems of oppression and create sustainable food systems that will bring together the communities in the earth and the people who are involved. And Gemma, I think you have a job, right? Where, where do you see yourself in five or ten years? I am not sure. I can. I hope I'm not under a mountain of debt from school, but I, I can say multimedia, human rights law. Um, Indigenous peoples within the international human rights framework are all of my interests. So I have no idea where that will take me, but I am excited about it. We're discussing youth advocacy and climate change at Climate One. Uh, Next question. Hi, my name's Zach. I uh, work in clean tech finance here in the city. And I'm wondering, um, we talked a little bit about um, behavioral um, issues and how we can get the general public to... um, to adopt more uh, renewable or uh, sustainable practices. And I was wondering, what do you think the one or two easiest um, easiest things the general population can do um, to do that? Low-hanging fruit. Low-hanging fruit. Where is it? I love this question because the answer is read a newspaper. Um, seriously, I, I, everyone gives out like a checklist of ten things to do or this, but the problem is once you do those ten things, you, you make people complacent. Um, oh, I've done my 10 things. I'm done, right? Um, and 
uh, I don't think that's effective because it, it absolves you from the, the true duty of being a citizen, which is to learn about the issue and then decide whether or not you actually want to act on it. And everyone has that right to choose to be apathetic or not. But I think reading a newspaper, it's only one thing. And I, I'm not even going to give you a second thing because that's the only one you have to do. Um, because from that, you get educated on not just climate change, but all the other important issues out there. And also read a good newspaper. Um, I should caveat that. Uh, New York Times is, is a good It's one. interesting that we hear uh, you know, a, a young person saying, read a newspaper. I thought your generation doesn't even read news. Did you subscribe to a newspaper? Uh, no. no. Uh, yeah. We, we, we get them in the dining okay. hall. Online but, uh, news. Okay. But seriously, and then once you get that education, um, then you say, hmm, I want to do something about this. And then you go look up those 10 things or 20 things or 30 things. Um, you don't need someone to hand it to you. One th- okay, newspaper. Who else has an idea for one thing, low-hanging fruit? Trey? Um, I, I also agree with uh, Jason. It, you should definitely just go out there and be educated and just be aware of your surroundings. If you hear something interesting about like a new movement, whether it be climate change or anything, you should get educated because nothing's going to change if you just live in your own little bubble. So, Ellie, should people give up meat? I took the words right out of my mouth. Um, I, I mean, the, the answer I would feel good about would be go out and talk to people and, and get their stories to the same as um, people on my, either side of me. But um, I think cutting out meat, and if you can't do that, cutting out red meat, it uses so much water, and we have such a, a water crisis in the world. Uh, it uses so much petroleum. It uses so many... Um, millions of acres of feed um it's it you know i think cutting out red meat if you want that simple thing where you can feel good about yourself um i think that's probably the one certainly dr pachari chair of the ipcc has been saying that for some time and Mm -hmm. michael pollan says that red meat's a very ineffective way to translate uh with solar energy to calories humans can use uh Mm -hmm. so Gemma, what do you think is one thing that people should do or think about communication Again, from the communication standpoint, when we did our training for Sustain Us about climate science and climate change, you know, I, I tried. I really tried. I took a class the quarter before leaving, and I didn't do so well. And, um, but in this training, uh, most of the emphasis was on communication, and they briefed us in how to talk about it. So you're not just throwing, like, 50% of blah, 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 you know, really making it your issue, your issue, my issue. And that was, I think, the most important thing I could have taken away from that is communication. We're discussing youth and climate change at Climate One. Next question, please. Hi, I'm Floyd Earl Smith. I'm involved in Transition San Francisco and a couple of other local groups. First of all, thank you all for your leadership on these issues. A lot of us really appreciate it, so thanks for that. Uh, I also wanted to know when you have people who are interested in similar causes, and I can imagine, for instance, exchanging speakers and uh, some of the issues that everyone who's working on these things is running into, how can we most easily and effectively reach groups uh, like yourselves to share ideas and uh, speaker programs and so on? Thank you. I'd like to take that one. Um, I think uh, this is something where maybe social media comes into play. Uh, People can definitely exchange ideas on Facebook and Twitter and blogging. Like, I've met a lot of people just through, like, uh, if uh, I spoke at an event or something, I get a bunch of, like, people following me on Twitter or something or Facebook fans. So I think that's a pretty good way. Others? Uh, Next question. (laughs) Just a second. Oh, hey. Um, my name is Madeline Kovacs, and um, I'm a co-coordinator of Project Survival Media with uh, Shadi Thane Wood. We were also in Copenhagen. 
And um, we're a global network of youth environmental journalists from all, from six continents who are trying to tell the stories of people who are on the front lines of climate change in every country, no matter what your location is, but also highlight, highlight those really innovative um, solution stories that can motivate people when they see an idea in one area, maybe that sparks an idea like, hey, I can start something like this in my area and then connect those people so we can continue to build these networks. And part of what I do is traditional journalism, but also through new media. And it's really interesting, the new media conversation that started up here on the stage. So I wanted to continue that and ask you guys, what is um, a situation where you've seen social media and or new media, I mean, they're two heads of a similar beast, right? New media being sort of um, blogging and, and online video and blogging and those sorts of things, and social media being Twitter, Facebook. But so the question is, how, how's an impact? My, my question is, when have you seen it work well, and when have you seen it fail, and what were the reasons behind that? Success and failure of, of uh, social media. I'd say... Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Okay. Uh, new media, the one place I do see, see it fail is in that it's very easy to read blogs or go to, go to exactly the, the place where all you hear is things that you agree with. Um, and that's why I say read a newspaper and not necessarily get your primary information um, from internet sources unless it's like the digital version of the newspaper, just in that um, good, solid newspapers will give you viewpoints that you would not have otherwise had. And that's really crucially important. Um, and then you can seek out you know, the further analysis or whatnot. And that's the problem with new media I see in that it's very easy to bookmark your favorites and your favorites tend to be people that agree with you. And once that happens, um, it's pretty bad for democracy. Gemma? Timing, timing, oh my gosh, timing. And in response to the last question um, about how we can connect more um, uh, net of our groups together and, and share speakers is um, through events like these. You know, it was someone through Project Survival Media who ref was referred to another person from Sustain Us who referred me to Greg, who, and which is how I'm here. And timing and then the networking is is everything because I I went to a journalism school uh, program over the summer where they said if you're on a group or if you blog or anything like that stop it now because as a journalist you can't do any of that and then also in other trainings I've heard the exact opposite and while we were in Copenhagen um, the timing was everything because sometimes we would want to have a press conference and we, we had a couple and where no one would show up because uh, something else was happening at the same time or a, as things were changing by the second, you know, we, it was always being on top of everything. And um, so that's when, I've, when our strategy kind of failed. But um, they're, they're both necessary, social and new media. Ali or Shreya, do you read information sources that you disagree with? Um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> there, like, a, there are those like websites out there that also d like, say climate change doesn't exist or things like that. But I mean, I guess it's good to find out other people's opinions because now that you know, like, the kind of the idea of where they're coming from, why they don't believe in something, it's kind of easier to target them, target them like in your response to them. So it's important to know the other side of the border. And Ali Reed, was social media part of the success of Real Food Challenge? Um, 
I'm sure it certainly has been. Um, I, I personally have not had huge successes with social media. I think, you know, inviting people to Facebook events can be a good way to get the word out, things like that. I've gone to a lot of social media um, workshops where ever, it's generally led by um, people in their 30s and 40s and a little older, and um, they're like, you need to get a Twitter, and then you need to update it twice a day. And, like, if anyone has ever had success with Twitter, please let me know, because I have never seen it do anything, other, unless you're a celebrity. Um, so, for me, the things that have been most effective have been FaceTime. They've been networking. I go to, you know, a conference a month or something. Like, the, it's, the, it's the in-person time, and I think um, new, uh, social media can be a good supplement to that, but it's definitely, I don't think, should be the primary source. Well, that's good news for the Commonwealth Club. Um, <laughs> next question, please. Hi, my name's Matt Harnack. I'm a documentary filmmaker. I'm always interested in um, thinking about ways to make the environmental movement more attractive um, and bring it to a wider audience. Uh, I think that with the advent of new media and the mainstream media, so many channels, so much noise in the system, do you guys have some interesting ways that you have thought about or some feedback of how you can cut through that noise? That, by the way, was a question submitted on Facebook for this program. So um, resonating <laughs> social... Cut, cutting through. How do you cut through? Um, well, I definitely think the best way to deal with it is to be optimistic when you're talking about climate change. I think everyone has kind of heard that old, old story like, oh, in this many years, you don't know what's going to happen to the world because of climate change. So instead of just like giving people that same old story of, like, these are the consequences. You should give them a solution to the problem, and these are a bunch of things you can do that these people have done, and it's fun and interesting. So I think the best thing to do is to be optimistic because it's better to deal with happy people than unhappy people. <laughs> is there even climate fatigue? Some people would say don't even talk about climate change. Just talk about food, energy security, saving money because the dishwasher is running at night. <laughs> Uh, don't even mention climate, says the guy who found climate one. But, you know, <laughs> um, you know, does that, do you think there's any legs in that? Not even the, using the right frame? Is climate change the right frame? Um, well, I, I, it also depends on, like, the type of audience you're targeting. Um, a lot of people, if you're targeting people who are pretty aware of the problem, you can just skip straight to the point, like, oh, this is a specific crisis, like the energy crisis, or making food more organic. So, like, you'd have less of a carbon footprint. Then you can skip right to the chase. But if you're meeting people who don't know what what climate change is, then you should obviously start from step one. Back to Gemma's point about tailoring uh, messages and communication. Uh, Shreya Indukuri is a student at the Harker Upper School in San Jose, and we're discussing youth and advocacy at Climate One. Anyone else on that before we go to the next question? Making the issue unique to where you're coming from. Again, it, I don't, okay, I don't have to say climate change. I'll say human rights because that's the focus from which I'm coming from. And instead, I mean, we can talk about how, um, how dependent our, our economy is on, you know, oil and gas and how a lot of these, and nuclear especially, and how a lot of these development projects are within 20 to 40 kilometers of an indigenous community in the United States alone, you know? So, again, it's, um, it's a personal issue. And a strong social justice <laughs> issue, too. Uh, next question, please. Uh, hi, my name is Alicia Fowler, and I work with the Alliance for Climate Education as well. And one of the things I do is talk with a lot of different people a lot about climate change. And 
Something I'd love to hear a little bit more about is you're all working on really interesting sounding projects and issues related to climate change on your campuses or where you are. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about maybe the successes and or challenges you've faced in, in educating your peers and what it's been like interacting with them as you try to raise awareness, such as maybe with Smart Powered and things like that. Smart Power Ed. Shreya? <laughs> um, well, our organization's pretty new, but um, something I think is important is if we definitely had to tell our story, like that's something you should do, share your story, because if, if we were just doing this smart energy project at our school and no one knew about it except for our principal and facilities director, then I don't really think it's um, as powerful as it would be as, as if we had told everyone what was happening at our school. Because from there, a lot of students have actually come up to us and shared ideas with us about what they'd like to do, and we've directed them to like, different organizations to like, kind of get their ideas implemented. So I think that's something important. If you don't share your story, like, you're never going to meet new people. <laughs> So giving them information, yeah, awakening them. Sure. Who else? I'd say also getting back to connecting things locally and framing it. It really comes under framing because students are just like adults in many ways, and that they, yes, we are more susceptible to change, and that we aren't as entrenched. We've been around for less, fewer years, I should say. Um, but at the same time, we are habituated in in our lifestyles and and the system. And many of us have too many things to worry about. Um, and it's really connecting it locally and making that, making this very global and broad issue, communicating it in such a way that, that it's localized. And uh, I don't know how to do that. A lot of us don't. Um, we try. And uh, you're successful with some. And, and I'm more unsuccessful than successful, unfortunately. But that's a whole field right now, is, is the behavioral side, communicating what is discussed in academia, the ivory tower problem and what's discussed in uh, these upper levels and bring it down to, to what we can all relate to. I think that's really the key to youth, to adults, to everyone. Jason Beatty is an undergraduate at Stanford and a California climate champion. Let's have the next question, please. Hi, my name is Justin Lee. Um, I just recently moved to California, but I've been a college student for several years. I just got out, and I work as a green building consultant. There's been a lot of talk, both in my experience in youth organizing and today, about the connections between the different types. I mean, climate change, for example, is an umbrella issue, I believe somebody used the term. And I apologize if this puts you on the spot, because I don't know how well you actually know each other. But I'm very curious if you could talk about the integration of our different issues. Because, I mean, for me, it's personally green building. Energy has always been my passion. We have food. We have indigenous issues. Um, If you could talk more about how we're actually tying those together in a practical way so that people who don't see those connections can actually hear about them. Because the they definitely exist. Ali, you want to take that? You have a holistic view of climate, how it touches a lot of things. Sure, yeah. One of the, I think, great strengths of the Real Food Challenge, um, and I think of where the sustainable food movement is going in general, um, is that it is really holistic, because everyone eats, hopefully, every day. Um, <laughs> and one of the tools that we've uh, developed in the Real Food Challenge to sort of illustrate this a little bit is what we call the Real Food Wheel, um, and so we take a, a wheel and divide it into four quadrants. One is producers, one is consumers, one is communities, and one is the earth. Um, and talking about different ways that food plays into all those different quadrants. And like, you know, producers, you could do fair trade or family farming. And consumers could be taste, it could be nutrition, you know, all these different aspects. And one of the great things I love about this activity is that if we do it for more than five minutes, the wheel totally breaks down. You're like, how can you, you know, producers are consumers too, and how can you separate the earth from communities? And um, so I think where the Real Food Challenge has gone, and I 
think and hope and really do believe that where the movement is going is that um, you try to draw these lines and they'll inherently just break down because climate change is not an issue that, um, you know, it's not people, you know, chaining themselves to redwood trees. It's an issue that is is sort of a fight for our lives. Um, And food is the same way... um, that everyone, everyone is touched by it. It's not a fringe issue. Um, and it also has fingers in all of these other issues that maybe people are more passionate about and so is able... And I know this is sort of a vague answer and is not getting into specifics, but because it's so broad, the specifics would be here all night. Um, so I, I really think food is you know, where my passion is, and it's a great example of this, but I think that a lot of the issues we're facing today um, can be tied in to pretty much anything else. Allie Reed is a student uh, undergraduate at, at UC Berkeley, and we're discussing advocacy at Climate One. Uh, Gemma Givens, you framed it as human rights. So are human rights people awakening to climate change, and are climate pe- people, change people, connecting with human rights? In a way, the, the final outcome of the Copenhagen Accords did not include this sentence, but a draft did. Uh, we were as the Indigenous Peoples Caucus, able to get one sentence inserted into a draft which said basically that the, the parties of the Copenhagen uh, COP15 recognize... No, take note of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Whereas before, um, in recent climate meetings, we were told that this was not a place for human rights, you know, this is about the environment, this is about climate change, this, what are you guys doing here? And so, again, in, from the indigenous perspective, I suppose, it's a, it's, it's a long haul, it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint, but it was something, you know, and it was um, taken out of brackets, which means it won't be uh, looked back and revised again. So it's in this draft to be revisited in the Cancun meeting this uh, coming December. But um, I, yeah, I think Copenhagen, even in the smallest aspect, you know, sh- took note of um, our presence there. And in in regards to the last question too, also um, part of one of my colleagues is working with the Tribal Campus Climate Challenge, which is working to harness wind, solar energy in the, the plains in North Dakota. And so it's, they're, they're all interconnected. And if we had, like, you know, a couple more hours here, we could go through all of it. But, um, yeah, we're, we're all, all of our issues are intrinsically connected. We actually have a couple more minutes. I want to wrap up by asking you, uh, each of you, uh, quickly, you know, Who's a leader out there in this on these issues that really inspires you, Gemma? Oh man, on who the spot. comes to mind first? My mom. <laughs> mom. Okay. My mom. Um, okay. She and my dad were activists when they were my age and even younger. You know, she worked on the nuclear freeze campaign in San Leandro. San Leandro. Yeah. I remember that. Okay. And um, she, so, being unaware of just everything that was going on, you know, not just on the indigenous perspective side aspect of it, but in general was never an option. So, so your mom and dad. Okay, we need to, uh, Jason. Yeah. I would say uh, Michael Pollan, just in that uh, he's, he's led this movement not through, you know, 
traditional. Well, I, I, he does it through persuasion and not through telling you you should do this. You He's not a high and mighty enviro right. No, and he yeah. has a huge following just because he can argue his point very well and be a very fair uh, debater about it. So, yeah. Allie Reed, who inspires you? Um, there's a, an activist in the Bay Area named Nikki Henderson, um, who I've worked with a lot in the past, um, and she has worked on green collar jobs. She's working, she's now the executive director of People's Grocery in Oakland. Um, and not only is she so passionate and so knowledgeable and so capable and has done so much and is still so young, um, but she does it in such an inspiring and fun and engaging way. That she, just, I, she is something that I aspire to be. Shreya, you're 16. Who inspires you? Uh, I'm going to cheat and pick more than one person, but um, Alexis Ringwald, my mentor, she lived in India for three years and kind of spearheaded a, almost a 1,200-mile um, climate solutions road tour all over India. The India um, Youth Network? Uh-huh. Yeah, Climate, like yeah. just talking about climate change. And um, this is an organization, but ACE definitely inspires me. The They're, Alliance for Climate Education? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They have a really dynamic presentation, which I think reaches out to students, and I've never seen students really getting more geared up about climate change than after they've seen their presentation. Well, you all inspire me. I know some of your parents are proud of you. Some of your parents are here. Thank you all for coming uh, to Climate One. Our guests today at Climate One have been Jason Beatty, a Stanford student and a California climate champion, Gemma Givens, a a recent graduate of UC Santa Cruz involved with the Indigenous Environmental Network, Shreya Ndukuri, a student at Harker Upper School in San Jose, and Allie Reed at UC Berkeley and the Real Food Challenge. Uh, Thank you all for coming to Climate One today. Thank Thank you. Thank you.